Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Well, thanks for having me. So grateful to be here. You know, Talk about a hot topic. Uh, we picked the right time for a hot topic and couldn't have picked a better time. You know, when Jeremy first emailed me, I think a couple of months, two, three months ago, to ask me if I come, obviously we knew there could be a decision, but we didn't know what the decision would be or when it would come. And of course, it came Friday, and here we are on Monday talking about it. One of the, just to throw Jeremy under the bus real quick, uh, <laughs> when he actually emailed me, he acted as if we didn't know each other. And we actually were in India together. I almost got thrown out of the country, and the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl. I'm like, how could I have forgotten who you are when we experienced this? I literally almost got tossed out of the country. That's another story for another day. Uh, but but what, a, what a hot topic that this is. And I, I want us to look at both what does this case mean from, that we saw on Friday? What, is it, what does it really mean? Why is it important? But ultimately... Like I hope we've been doing each and every week, I want to draw us back to the Word of God. What does God's Word really say about this? What does He really call His people to be doing? And so this is a hot topic, friends. One, you have the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey that dropped on Friday. And then right here in this room, in our state of Kansas, on August the 2nd, we have an opportunity to see what I will call a mini-Roe happen as well in Kansas. And I want to talk about that briefly as well before we look at this. So quickly update on what happened with Dobbs. So if you're familiar, in 1973, uh, Roe v. Wade was a case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court. A couple of things, if you don't know, the the plaintiff in that case was a lady by the name of Norma McCorvey. She went by the name of Jane Roe. Norma McCorvey had never had an abortion And at that point, she hadn't had any children, but she was brought up as the plaintiff to sue in order to try to gain rights for abortion. And so what happened in that case, and I'm not a legal scholar, but just to give you, basically, instead of looking at the Constitution, nine judges tried to piece together a reason that this young lady could have, even though she hadn't had one, nor was she pregnant, could have had an abortion. And so they put that together and the biggest issue that happened in Roe versus Wade was they started talking about the viability and a couple of terms were used in that case. The first was fetus, not baby, but fetus. So what is the viability of the fetus? When can a fetus live outside of a mom? The, the second term that got thrown around in 1973 was this idea of trimesters, right? And so the idea was, well, when is a child truly viable? When is a child truly able to be able to live on its own? And that's what happened in 1973. And you had a court that basically said, okay, we're not going, we're going to allow abortion to happen. The legislature had not moved. The states had not acted. The the president had not signed anything. A governor had not signed any law. But in the Supreme Court, They basically trumped all legislation and said, no legislation can stand that would allow a restriction upon abortion. And that happened in 1973. In 1992, 
Planned Parenthood versus Casey came along, and basically they were trying to attack the viability line. Like, well, well, when is a child truly viable? And at this point, I just want to stop right now. And if you are a believer in God's word, I want to ask you a question that I think really will guard our time. When is life ever viable on its own? Right? When are we ever viable on our own? If that's truly the issue that we're talking about, God's word says we're never truly viable. So right here, I'm going to tell you right now, and I hope I don't lose the rest of the room and y'all don't hear another word I say by this, but I have only been hunting one time and I missed the deer that I shot at. And I have a green thumb. I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb. And everything that I try to touch in the garden, it literally dies. So if I were going to try to be viable without other people, I would starve to death because I can't plant and I apparently can't kill, right? And so I would starve to death without other people, right? God in his economy has created us to be dependent upon one another, but ultimately we're dependent upon him. And so God is an economy. When is life ever truly viable on its own? But that's, that's what came before the courts. And so what happened is a lot of states have been creating laws in their legislature and getting them signed into law, trying to restrict abortion. And what's basically happened to all of these cases is they've gone to the federal court and they basically sat in a court of appeals because the Supreme Court was not willing to hear those cases. Well, we started to see some rumblings in the last several years that the Supreme Court might be willing to take a case. And so Alabama, the state that I came from, did what was called a complete ban on abortion. Texas, Georgia, they went for a heartbeat. Now, Texas did their bill a little bit differently than Georgia did, but, but they tried a heartbeat bill. And then the state of Mississippi, and I actually got to meet the lady that wrote the law in the state of Mississippi, and her story is incredible, if I have time to tell it. Maybe somebody should ask, what's the story about the lady in the state of Mississippi? Uh, right? <laughs> So text that question now. But uh, I got to meet her, and they tried this 15-week. Like, let's, let's at least say that 15 weeks, that it's viable. Uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a little bit of a teaser on the story that she wrote the bill. She actually helped give birth to a 15-week-old baby, and it lived for five days. And that's why she said, let's start at 15 weeks. Let's start at 15 weeks to try to attack this viability. Well, the Supreme Court took the case up. And basically, the majority opinion on Friday was, hey, look, we created a right in 1973. We kind of tampered with it, but sustained it in 1992. And the truth of the matter is this needs to go back to the states, and it needs to go back to the people, and it needs to go back to the legislature, and it needs to go back to the appropriate forms of government. Right Now, if I'm going to tip myself off anything politically tonight, I will tell you I believe that the the good thing about the United States is that we have three branches of government, and they all have their different duties. And because they have their different duties, it gives rights to the people to elect representatives to make laws, and for the executive branch to enforce those laws, and for the judicial branch to make sure that no law is unconstitutional. And so basically the Supreme Court said, we don't find anything that there was any bearing and we're sending this back to the people, back to the states and back to the legislative branch. So that's what happened on Friday. So what does this mean? Abortion is not over in the United States of America. Okay. As a matter of fact, there are states that already have 
laws that are now legal on the books, like New York, that are much more aggressive than what we saw allowed by Roe v. Wade. In New York, you can go all the way into the time of birth with abortion. In some states, now I hope that these are crazy things that will never see the light of day, but there are senators and legislatures in some states that are trying to introduce that you could actually, and this is called infanticide, eliminate your child 30 days after birth. So we see all types of things, and these are happening around the country. Now, some of these things you may go, well, that's on the left coast or the the west coast, and here we are right here in the center of the heartland of America. This will never come here. But brothers and sisters, there's 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 a measure on the ballot here in Kansas about whether or not to overrule the Kansas Supreme Court that, that stopped the law that the legislature in Kansas passed and the governor signed limiting abortion here in Kansas. Now, here's why it's so important before we get into God's word. Let's just look at the geography for a second. Missouri on Friday became the first state to have its law completely enacted. Why? Because their law predated Roe. So Missouri literally after the Supreme Court at 9:10 Central Time issued their opinion, you no longer have an abortion in Missouri. So neighboring state, Oklahoma now has a ban. Nebraska, they're still in limbo, but right now they have a 15 weeks. So after 15 weeks, you can't have an abortion. Texas, as you know, their heartbeat bill was found by the Supreme Court to be constitutional. North Dakota and South Dakota have bans, and Iowa is still working on it, but they're going to have strict limitations. So what does that do today in Kansas? It means that Kansas will become a destination state for other people to come and have an abortion. Now, before we make a political statement, because that's not what we're here to do, let's see what God's Word has to say about life. When does life begin? Why is life important? But most importantly, is God's people What is our response towards life? And so ultimately, I'm going to take us to Colossians chapter 1, and that's where we're going to spend some time. But but we're going to walk through and just see some some of the background from Genesis as well. But even before we look at that, I, I just want to address one thing. I know in a room this size with the statistic that there could be those in this room that have, one, either experienced abortion Or men, maybe you've encouraged abortion or paid for abortion. And I just want to acknowledge right off that we serve a God of grace. We serve a God that is full of grace and he's full of mercy. And he says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is mercy for all of our sins. And I want to tell you today, we have an adversary who has two powers of deception in this debate. And one, there is no one more pro-choice than the devil on the way to the abortion clinic, trying to trick, twist, and prod a woman and a man to be an accomplice to an abortion. And yet, on the other side of the abortion, there's no one more pro-life than the devil, as he tries to convict you, as he tries to bring guilt as he tries to make you think that you could never be forgiven. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know there is forgiveness in the blood of Christ. So plead on the blood of Christ. Love one another. Let's love one another. Let's wrestle with one another as we seek the Lord. And let's be, sympath- let's be sympathetic to one another. 
So the question I want to really ask us tonight is, are we willing to be inconvenienced to defend life? And that's really what we're going to see through God's word is this whole idea. Are we willing to be inconvenienced in order to defend life? And I believe that unfortunately we have become a people who really just want to be entertained, right? We, we, want, to, we want to be entertained. We want to see these episodes. And the truth of the matter is we want to do just enough to say that we did something. But I feel like sometimes we don't really want to get our hands messy. And if we're really going to be pro-life individuals that believe what the Word of God says about when life begins and what the duty of the Christ follower is to defend life, these are not Polaroid moments. These are not, you know, Instagram moments where you can get a picture, put it on Instagram, and see what I did. These are messy discipleship life moments. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be pro-life, it cannot end once the life is born, but it must continue. We must wrestle with single moms and show them the love of Christ and help their child who they have given life to. Right now in the state of Kansas, we have kids in foster care. Guess what is the same thing that is, is, is consistent with every last child in foster care? Their mom chose life. So what are we going to do for these kids in foster care in our state? Are we going to love on them? Are we going to care for them? Because let me tell you, if we're going to be pro-life and, and if we're going to see legislation happen that restricts abortion or limits abortion or bans abortion, we are going to have, praise the Lord, more children born. But some of those children are going to be born into difficult circumstances. Some of those children are going to be born into a, a lower socioeconomic place. And we've got to be ready. And God's word tells us we need to be ready to come alongside of those women and come alongside of those children. So I hope tonight from God's word, we're going to see that God's word tells us that we are adamantly to be pro-life, which means we are pro-woman and we are pro-child. And I hope that from God's word tonight, we will reclaim from the pro-abortion side, this whole idea that it's pro-woman or women's health care. Because I'll tell you right now, and I've, I've, I've worked in this field for 19 years, and my wife predated me, and she worked in it for five years. So together as a unit, we've been in this for 24 years. And I can tell you one thing, an abortion clinic is not pro-woman. Here's what they do. They bring the woman in, and they take her baby away. But they do nothing to address all the other things that she's dealing with in her life. They don't help her get a job. They don't help her get on her feet. They say that they want women to be able to continue their education or continue their career, but they don't do anything to help her with that. They simply take away her child. But I pray that as the pro-life people that believe in God's word and are called according to his purpose, that we won't be those that just care about a child, but we care about a woman as well. Because what we're going to see is a lot of times we like to look at the baby and say, that baby is made in the image of God. That woman is also made in the image of God. And the man who impregnated her is made in the image of God. And all three need for us to lean in and to show life and to show the love in the gospel of Christ Jesus. So Genesis 1, this is where we start, right? God said in the very beginning, he said, let us make man in our own image. And so Genesis 1 verse 26 said, and God said, Right, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is the refrain of Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and the sixth day. But we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Man fails. Sin comes into the world. And a spiral of sin begins. And man becomes depraved. He starts to look for his own image and, not, and for his own self, not for others. And we see that whole refrain start to happen in the beginning in Genesis. This morning, uh, I, ta- I taught our staff Bible study. We're going through the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 11, we even see that you see this command to be fruitful and multiply and to, to fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 11, the people instead decide to to build a tower. And what do they say? Let's build a tower so that we will not be scattered and we can stay here. In other words, let's not listen to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's stay here. So sin entered into the world. And beloved, what I want us to see is then in Genesis chapter 6, this is what the Lord says. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Brothers and sisters, it's because of sin that we are even here talking about this hot topic. It's because of us giving in to the sin that we have brokenness. It's why families are broken. It's why we even have to talk about an issue like this. It's why we have orphans and vulnerable children in our world because of sin. And God has called his people, called according to his purpose and his name, to go and display his glory to the watching world in order that we can start to repair the things that are broken. So that he could start to use us to repair the things that sin has so utterly broken. And so... Right off the top, sympathy and empathy for those that are hurting should never be an excuse for apathy towards the injustice which created that hurt. So sympathy and empathy for others should never be an excuse for apathy towards injustice. And so brothers and sisters, here's, here's maybe a hard thing. If we're going to really be pro-life, it means we can't just be pro-birth. We have to look at the other injustices around us that are impaling life from flourishing. Because God wants life to flourish. And so when we look around and we see other injustices that are happening, we can't stay silent and be one-issue injustice people. We serve a God of justice, a God who says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God who says in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We cannot be 
one issue pro-lifers, but we have got to be people that are pro-life because we realize that life born and in the womb is created in the image of God. So we can't be apathetic towards injustice. So that brings us to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And the theme of Colossians is that the Lord is, is God of all creation, including the invisible and the visible. He has secured redemption for his people. He's enabled them to participate in his death, his resurrection, and fullness. And so Paul writes this letter from Rome upon learning that dangerous and destructive teaching is threatening the church at Colossae. Paul writes this letter to respond to the situation and to encourage these believers in their growth towards Christian maturity. And he takes this opportunity to encourage these believers to press on towards maturity in Christ by continuing in their battle against sin, pursuing holiness in Christ, and learning to live distinctively as Christians. So first, so Colossians chapter 1, let's start in verse 15. He, being Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were not alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So five reminders that lead us to the gospel and ultimately propel us to gospel justice for the vulnerable. And the first one is that all life is created by God and is precious. Verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Beloved, all life is created by God and therefore it is precious. If you have a biblical worldview, then you realize at the very moment of conception, that is not a fetus, it's not a clump of cells, it is a baby. It is a human being. It is not the potential for life. It is life. I get to travel around and you know, one of the things that's very encouraging is how pro-life in thinking at least most of the newer generation is. And you know why? Because we have ultrasound technology. We can look inside of a woman's womb and see a heartbeat, fingers and toes, organs. I have a good friend that passed away several years ago. Her name was Karen Purvis, and she taught at TCU. And she used to say this, and I love it, so I steal it. She said, I love when science finally catches up with God. And so our science has finally caught up with what God has been saying from the very beginning, that life at the very moment of conception is life. Not the potential for life, it is life. And it's created by God. And it's created for God. 
But then under that, men and women are uniquely and wonderfully made by God. So men and women are uniquely and wonderfully made by God. We know this verse well, for you form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What does the psalmist say? My eyes saw when you were conceived the very moment of conception. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and yet there was none of them. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, there's a common refrain. After everything is made, God said, it was good. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, there's something that God saw that wasn't very good. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him helper fit for him. And so right there, God created man and woman different, but with equal worth and value, both image bearers of God. Notice Genesis 1:27. Does it say one is an image bearer and one's not? They're both image bearer, just different. The same, but different. God brought them together to bring a family. And family was what was meant for human flourishing. So how did we get to the decision in 1973? I'm going to make another political statement that I might get in trouble for, and I'm sorry. But it's because of maybe some people's favorite president, when he was governor of California, created something called no contest divorce, where a man could look at his wife or a wife could look at her husband and say, I don't have any reason. I just don't want to be married to you anymore. And that the state would accept it. Well, if you can decide when... And when you don't want to be married, and married is no longer a covenant and a contract, not even a contract, a covenant before God, then next goes, well, then I can be with whoever I want to be with. And if I can be with whoever I want to be with, and I have a child, well, I can do with that child whatever I want to do with that child. We need to see that that everything that we see today about the abortion is an attack on the very design of God. God designed men and women to be different, uniquely, and wonderfully made by him with different roles working together for human flourishing. But the second thing we see is that humanity was also created for God. Humanity was not created. We were not created for ourselves. We don't have children for ourselves. Every life that's created is for God. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is what Paul says to the church at Colossae in verse 17. He says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Brothers and sisters, from a biblical worldview, every life that is conceived was made for the glory of God. And so why do biblical believing Christians, why are we pro-life? It's not because we're inherently political. It's because we're inherently biblical. And we believe that every life was created by God, for God. And the second, or the third point, is that we realize that God supernaturally designed us to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. 
Brothers and sisters, we look for all types of things to try to satisfy us, don't we? You know, I, I don't have young children anymore, but I remember when I had young children, there was always that thing they wanted for their birthday or for Christmas, and then a week later, they forgot about it once they got it, right? And the truth of the matter is, we're still those young children who can't be satisfied, right? Why do you think that Apple is one of the most successful companies ever? Because every year, they tell you something. This is the best iPhone we've ever made. We've never made a better iPhone. Well, I would hope so, right? I hope you're not backing up technology and give me something worse, right? But they try to make you think, I need that. I can't live without the new thing they put on there. Wow, I only had 20 megapixels, and that one has 21. I have to have the extra megapixel, right? We think we, we have to have something else, but the truth of the matter is we can only be satisfied in God and God alone. He's the only one that satisfies us. So we are made by God. Men and women are uniquely made. We were made, created for God, and we are supernaturally designed to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in my sanctuary, upholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. We must never mark our lives or the lives of others as an inconvenience. When we find pure delight in Christ and in the Lord, then we're willing to do things that seem inconceivable and foreign to our neighbors, in our cities, in our country, because we're doing it not for ourselves, but we're doing it for Christ. Brothers and sisters, this culture is self-centered, and it is different when it sees a people that are God-centered. And I pray that's who we would be. But then the second point that we see from our passage is that we ultimately glorify God by our works of gospel-driven justice towards humanity. And in 17 and 19, we see that, that he is the firstborn, that all things are held together in him. And so basically, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. To come alongside and, and to do the works of the kingdom. And when we do these works of the kingdom, we're helping put things back together, right? Here's the deal. You're going to hear everybody on all sides of the abortion with lots of different things, but on the pro-abortion side, you're going to hear, well, this is just a much more complicated issue than just life being born. And the truth of the matter is they're right. It's much more complex. And so brothers and sisters, if we're really going to stand up and say, hey, let's, let's protect life because we are God's people by his Bible and we believe that life needs to be defended. It means that we're going to have to be able to get a little uncomfortable. We're going to have to do the things that are a little hard and a little difficult. And ultimately, we're going to have to follow the model of Christ. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to Nazareth and it says in Luke 4 that it was his tradition. He would come to the synagogue. It says that he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 61, and Jesus starts to read it. So he found the place where it was written, verse 18 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets in front of the synagogue and he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's only one difference between what Jesus read and what was in 
Isaiah 61, he was saying, me, I am it, I have come. Verse 20 says, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's what my teenagers at my home call a mic drop, right? So he reads it, drops the mic, sits down, I'm done, right? And this is what Jesus came to do, right? He came to give sight to the blind, physically and spiritually. Bartimaeus was on the road, and he comes and he restores his sight. But then think about the 12 disciples that followed him, that were with Jesus each and every day, and they were blind to who he was. As a matter of fact, Peter the brashest, when Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom of many, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter was like, no, you're not. (laughs) Not under my watch, you're not, right? Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and the the soldiers come, and Peter takes his sword and chops their ear off. I'm going to fight. They were blind spiritually to who Jesus really was, and Jesus came spiritually to open the eyes of our heart to see who he really was, but then we have the oppressed, Right? Jesus came to free the oppressed, to free the captives, to help them know that, that there was a way. Physically, he was freeing women from captivity. He was freeing men from bondage, physically. But ultimately, he was coming to free us from the bondage of sin and from the captivity of sin. And then Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And brothers and sisters, that's what we've been called to do as well to mimic the role of Jesus, to proclaim liberty to the captives, physically and spiritually, to to set sight to the blind. We're to care for children that have a special need. May it never be say of the church of God that we're not willing to take care of children with special needs. In Iceland today, there's 0% of babies that are born with Down syndrome because they're using amniocentesis and they're demanding that women have an abortion if they're having a Down's child. Brothers and sisters, we got to be ready to say, I'll take that child. That child can come home with me. I'll do whatever I can to defend that child and that life because that life is made in the image of my Savior. We got to be ready physically, but also to preach the gospel to those who are perishing and do not know the gospel. We've got to be willing to do and follow Christ and what he says. And there's both a physical and a spiritual reality. So we can't be good enough just to say things. We've also got to do certain things. So we glorify God by our works of gospel-driven justice. And then the third point is true hope comes from the guarantee of Christ that this fallen world is not our true home. Look again at verse 20 in Colossians chapter 1. This is in, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the cross of Christ Jesus, we realize this is not our home. I don't know if it happens. I'm going to be honest. I haven't been to a mall that I know of since COVID has happened, right? Uh, we've just gotten into that rhythm of not going to malls. But if you remember pre-COVID, if you would go to a mall and you'd have the guy in the food court who would have the bourbon chicken on a toothpick, right? Uh, he never means for you to go by and just keep passing by and get a meal out of it, right? Give me some more of that bourbon chicken, right? right? He's, what is he trying to do? He's trying to give you a taste so that you can go, you know what? I wasn't in the mood for bourbon chicken. I tasted that bourbon chicken. Now I want bourbon chicken. 
and all of a sudden you, pen, you spend eight and a half dollars on bourbon chicken that you didn't come to the mall for. He's giving you a taste so that you want more. I don't know if you've ever been to Costco or Sam's. I will tell you this. I will confess. I have done this, and I'm sorry to confess it. If anyone runs a Costco or Sam's, I'm sorry. I have taken my family to five, and we have made lunch off of the, <laughs> the meal, the little samples. It's really good. You just send them up, and you say, yeah, I need five of those. And then the next kid goes, I need five of those. And next thing you know, you've made a meal at Sam's or Costco. But the thing is, they don't intend for you to make a meal. They intend for you to try it and then go buy the lifetime supply that they have there <laughs> so that you can spend your money on that, right? That's what they're trying to do. Brothers and sisters, here's what we've been called to do. We've been called to put a taste of the kingdom on the mouth of those around us. With our gospel-driven action, we're showing this is not our home, but let us show you a taste of what our home tastes like. Let us show us a, a little bit about what our Savior looks like. Hey, we're imperfect. We're like a broken mirror. We just show a little bit of it, but ultimately we're broken. But let's just show you a taste so you can see the kingdom. But brothers and sisters, we realize this is not our home. This is not our home. And when you're staying in a hotel, you don't treat it the same way you would treat your home. If, if the, the toilet starts to overflow, you're not calling a plumber. Hey, come fix the hotels. I got, it's, on, it's on me. Hey, owner of the hotel, I've got this. This is on me. I'm going to fix the toilet. I also took it liberty to go to Walmart and get some light bulbs. Some light bulbs are out, right? It's not your home. But brothers and sisters, this is the world created by our Father, and we're not living for this world. We're living for another world. And so in this, we fight for justice and we fight for life because we want to show the watching world a taste of what our kingdom, what our God really looks like. This is what Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11-12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Oh, this is not our true home. And so we're willing to sacrifice it all. You know, could you imagine being assigned to discourage Paul? I mean, he'd said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Could you imagine for a moment? Like, hey, hey, Paul, if you don't shut up, we're going to throw you in prison. Paul would have said, that's fine. I'd love to. I'll actually convert all the prisoners. <laughs> and I'll sing songs, and I'll be just as happy. Well, fine, Paul. We're going to kill you. He would say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is great gain. Well, Paul... Well, fine, we're, we're going to let you live. Well, fine, for me to live is Christ, and I'm just going to go about doing what I'm doing. Could you imagine, why was Paul so hard to discourage? Because he knew where his home was. Brothers and sisters, we must live like this is not our home. And so we, we love, we show mercy, because ultimately, we want others to know this is not our home. And so we spend our resources on behalf of others. We do the hard things on behalf of others. We stand on the other side of the postpartum ward of the hospital with open arms for the single mom and her child, even to our inconvenience, because this is not our home. But then fourth, gospel-driven justice brings trials and sufferings, but Jesus brings peace, joy, hope, and strength. Now, if you go on in our passage, right, 
And this is probably not the advertisement you want to put on, but this is true Christian life. Amen. You know, you don't want to say, hey, come to Christ and you can suffer. But that's the truth, right? And this is what Paul says, First Corinthians, Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of this energy that he powerfully works within me. Orphans and vulnerable children and vulnerable women live in a world of darkness. And beloved, the church has been charged to take the gospel and the light of the gospel into the darkness. My 12-year-old, when she was five, she's a lot like her dad. Uh, she likes to stay up late and she likes to get up early. Um, I know not everyone can do that. I could tell you later, if you want another question, you could ask how in the world did I ever start going to bed late and getting up early? And I can answer that question later. But the important thing is she gets up early. And the one day that I'll sleep in is on Saturday mornings. And usually sleep in for me means like seven, right? I'll, I'll go 6.30 or seven on a Saturday morning. Well, my sweet little Emily when she was young, I remember at five years old, she would come into the bedroom at 5 a.m. and she would flip on the lights. <laughs> now, I know you've all assessed that I'm a very pleasant young man. I'm, I mean, I'm just great. I, I probably don't ever leave, you know, raise my voice. Always very pleasant. I can tell you I was not pleasant at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning when the light hits me in the face. Why? And what is the thing? The only thing I could say to this cute little five-year-old girl is turn the light off. And brothers and sisters, when we take the light of the hope of the gospel, and when we're willing to make a stand that says, we believe that life begins at conception because it's made in the image of God. And when we're willing to say, there is no way that men can be saved except through Christ Jesus. When we make that kind of stance, and we take the light into the darkest places, where Satan has dominion, we can expect to be attacked. Because the darkness always wants to expel the light. So brothers and sisters, we got to be ready for trials and sufferings. But remember, this is in our home. It's not what we're living for. We're not trying to make our best life now. We're trying to help others see that they can have their best life in Christ with him in the new kingdom. And I know in a room this size, there are many who go, hey, this is me. I've been, I'm weary. I've been serving. I've been struggling. And I'm feeling the attacks of the adversary. I've stood up. I want you to know that Satan attacks only those he deems as a threat. And Satan will attack when you start to threaten his strongholds. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you right now, the war of life in our country is a stronghold of Satan. You start to say things that are unpopular, and you will be attacked. I have had the opportunity, by God's grace, to have 12 to 14 interviews on Friday after the decision came forth. Probably the hardest interview I had was from National Public Radio, and they were doing a hit piece on pregnancy test centers and pro-life organizations. And it was tough. It was really, really hard. 
But you know what I had to sacrifice? I had to sacrifice being popular at that moment. Because it's not about being popular. Now, I wanted to season it with salt, right? I didn't want to just like, kaboom, kaboom, right? I wanted to season it with salt. I wanted to be reasonable. I wanted to use reasoning and judgment. One of the first questions she asked me, she said, well, you're a pro-life organization, right? And I was like, yeah, we're a pro-life organization. And she said, do you receive money from corporations or businesses? And I said, yes, we have donors. Sometimes those donors have businesses. And she says, do you think it's okay for a business to give to a distinctively pro-life organization? Now, brothers and sisters, when you go out, you got to be prayed up. And I was prayed up. I'd ask all these people to pray because I had this NPR, and, and we knew it was going to be a hit piece. So this is not of me. This was of the Lord. I don't know why I said it. I said, well, I've been seeing in the news that Dick's Sporting Goods and Amazon and Starbucks and others are going to pay for abortions for their employees and They've been supporting Planned Parenthood. So I guess in our country, if it's okay to support Planned Parenthood and abortion, it should also be okay to support pro-life. What I realized afterwards is what she was trying to get me to do is a pro-life leader on record saying, because the next question was going to be, is it okay to give to pro-abortion things? And then she'd have a pro-life leader saying one of two things, yes or no. We will be attacked. There will be spiritual warfare People will not understand. This young lady did not get off the phone and go, he's my hero. Love him. Such a nice guy. (laughs) Agree with everything he says. We need to be reasonable. We need to be seasoned with salt and love and grace. It's a balance between grace and truth. Truth without love is hurtful. Love without truth is not love at all. But when we speak truth and love to those To some, it will be sweet words of grace. To others, we will feel attack. But last, and well, there's another point. God always calls us to more than we can handle ourselves. Amen. Yet he will always give us his abiding presence. And then fifth, and I know you're ready for the final point. All works of justice separated from the gospel, from gospel proclamation are futile. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Why do we stand up for life? It's not to make a political stance. It's to make a gospel stance. If we love on the single mom and love on the child and do all these works of justice, but we never proclaim the gospel then we're just a noisy gong. Anything that we do that is devoid from the gospel is futile. We must be about preaching the hope of the gospel because that's where hope is truly found. It's not in our home. It's not in our cul-de-sac. It's not in our picket fence. It's not in our checkbook. It's not in our bank account. Hope is found in the gospel. And when we go about and do justice, we must make the gospel known. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinthians, church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of vain, of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time of God's sweet, amazing, and abundant grace. 
And there's a message to sinners. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And our aim is that men, women, boys, and girls will bow a knee to Jesus now before the day of judgment when every knee has to bow. We want to present the gospel. And we're pro-life people because we're gospel-driven people. So I'm over my time, but we still have questions. And uh, Liam may not like me for saying this. Jeremy might throw me out. I know we have an 8 o'clock time. I don't have anywhere to go home, so I'm okay. (laughs) I don't have anybody waiting on me. Everybody get comfortable. (laughs) Herbie, thank you. Okay, so we had a variety of questions come in, um, and so we'll just go ahead and kind of work through the list and answer them how you see fit. Sounds good. All right. So the, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you that came in was, how would you handle a situation in, in which someone from a traumatic situation was questioning having an abortion? Mm. So this is hard, and... The best way I can illustrate that is uh, one of the directors in our organization, she's actually our Tennessee director, she's given me permission to share her story whenever I want. Uh, When she was 19 years old, she came home from college. Uh, She was working in Florida at the time, and she was molested multiple times by, uh, by her boss. And one of those times impregnated her. So she went actually to the church she was going to, to the pastor, and she said, what should I do? And he said, have an abortion. But she knew that was not the right thing. And these are her words. Her name's Michelle, not my words, but I think they're so poignant, right? That baby, that life, should not have to pay the consequence of another sin, right? We wouldn't want that life to not have the opportunity of life because of something else that's tragic. One tragedy doesn't make another tragedy any better. There's two tragedies now. The loss from abusive situation and then the loss of life. And so to finish the story real quick of Michelle, she uh, had that baby. She instantly was shunned by her church in Florida. Um because they saw her as a single mom that was no longer worthy of their care. Um, Men did not want to date her because she had a baby and a child. But God in his grace, um, her son Nick just graduated from college this year. Uh, He is a biochemist of some sort. I mean, like smart dude, right? And about four years ago, the guy that she had dated in high school who had also never been married came to her and said, I don't know why I've waited so long. Let's get married. So she's married now. Um, Nick has graduated from college. And she says all the time, and she's much more qualified to answer this question than I am, but she says, I can look at any woman in the face and say he was worth it. Two wrongs never make the first wrong right or help you to cover over that, that, that wrong. And she's gone through a lot, but she would say he is completely worth it. Life is always worth it. And that's hard. And that's, that's something we want to be prayerful of and sensitive to. Um, 
and, and, and I would also say this. You do not have to have experienced a situation in order to be able to help somebody through a situation, right? If that were true, then Jesus Christ could have never sympathized with sinners, right? Because he never sinned, right? You do not have to have experienced something to be able to help somebody through it, but we always need to have grace and we need to always have mercy um, and the gentleness of the Lord. So make sure you're prayed up. But biggest thing is taking the life of a child is not going to undo the pain and the trauma of, of the, the act of abuse. So in a situation like that where there has been trauma for the mom, you know, what kinds of, of resources or next steps would, would you encourage anybody who's walking alongside this mom um, as, as she makes this decision? What are, what are some of her options? Yeah, so safe house. I mean, if she's in imminent danger still, a safe house. And you may go, well, we don't have safe houses around here. Yes, you do. You have safe houses. You probably don't know where they are because they're safe. And they, um, <laughs> you're not supposed to know where they are. But make sure that you get her to a safe place and to a safe house if she's in imminent danger. Um, you know, competent biblical counseling. Um, and again, there's great counseling and God's common grace has given a lot of really good secular counselors some really good things but we need to make sure it's biblically sound so biblically sound counsel um, there are uh, one couple of things that I would say and don't want to get too technical uh, but there is something called EMDR that is really really good for folks who've gone through serious trauma um, and there are Christian counselors that will do EMDR and it's it's scripture or it's it's hymns that you're actually listening to and um, there's a, there's there's a lot of good stuff like that. Uh, it sounds funny, but but play therapy or theraplay is really good with trauma victims. No no matter how old or long they are, uh, long how old they may be. Um, the other thing that I will say is this: right, God is a God of grace, and He has made us as very resilient creatures, um, and. And we need to go and we need to lean in with those who are of trauma. And we need to show them love. Um, we need to show them acceptance. Now, not, ex- not accepting, right, sinful behavior, but accepting them as an image bearer of God and loving on them. And so counseling, biblical counseling, being there and being available um, and just being okay at times. You know, I know this is really hard. And we, sometimes we don't know what to do, right? Someone's lost a loved one. I, I actually in my weird trip, ended up on a plane sitting next to a guy whose son had just passed away on Thursday. And he, would, he started weeping um, somewhere over Mississippi. And, uh, you know, sometimes we just want to start talking, but, but really all I did was I put my hand on him, and then I listened to him. So sometimes people, have been through, they just need you to listen. Sometimes they just need you to be quiet and be there and be okay with the silence. And so... Presence, counsel, safe house, those are things I would recommend. That's really helpful. Okay, so what does the Bible say is my responsibility as a Christian when it comes to abortion? It is, is it enough for me to be pro-life in my personal beliefs, or should I be outwardly advocating and supporting pro-life positions, taking hard stands? How does this play out when it comes to loving my neighbor who's pro-choice and vocal about that position? So I feel like I'm maybe backing up to last week, so I hope I don't undo whatever (laughs) someone said last week, but uh, I would look at government was instituted by God, Um, 
and he created government, and government was to be a terror to bad conduct. And so we are to, we are to get engaged, right? At the same time, uh, I believe that God has this great tension, right? Tension between grace and love. There's also a tension there um, between obsession and involvement. And so we need to be involved. We need to pray for our leaders, right? And we don't need, just need to pray the imprecatory prayer, may his days be short and may another take his place of office, right? We don't, we don't need to just pray those imprecatory prayers, but we need to earnestly pray for our leaders. You know, at the very beginning of, of May, when the leaked opinion came out, and a lot of folks in my circles were like, hey, we need to pray for those five justices by name. We need to be praying for, you know, Judge Kavanaugh. We need to be praying for Judge Alito and Judge Thomas and, and um, Barrett and Gorsuch. And what my heart was leading me to do is, no, let's pray for the other four, right? Let's, let's pray for them, that they would flourish, that they would be safe, that God would protect them, that God would give them wisdom, Right? So we don't need to just pray for those we agree with. We need to pray for all of those. Right? I, I don't know where you are politically. I don't care what you think. Right? And I'm not going to get into legitimacy or illegitimacy. Whether you like it or not, Joseph R. Biden took the oath of office and he's our president. And we need to be praying for him daily. Right? Because if you disagree with something he's doing, you can't change his mind. But we have a God that says the king's Heart is like streams of water in the hand of our God. We need to pray for our leaders, no matter if we agree with them or disagree with them. You know, we look at the conflict in Ukraine, we need to be praying for Putin as much as we're praying for Zelensky. We need to be praying for God to be working. You know, um, I love it. I, I've been able to, to work in several countries where there's truly oppression for believers. And I remember... In one East Asian country, a pastor who had been in jail many, many, many times and uh, telling me, stop praying that we will be released from jail or that we'll have new leaders. Pray that we will be bold and be a witness. And so as believers, we, we've got to lean in where we can, but we've also got to be bold and be a witness. And so I think there's a tension between involvement and obsession, right? We need to be involved and we need to advocate, but we cannot be obsessed and again, it goes back to point number three. We need to remember this is not our home, right? Now, I hope you're not the people who go to a hotel room and start to ransack it, right? So we don't, we don't want to just go, oh, it's not our home. <laughs> who cares, right? Um, no, this is not our true home, but this was made by our Lord. This is his place. This is, he's made it. So we, 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 take, we, we are caregivers. God put us here to, to care, to till the land and to till the soil and take care of the earth to subdue it, to, to multiply, to take care of it. And so we, we get engaged, but we can't be obsessed, right? Like our life depends upon it. So I think I missed your question. Yes, I think we should advocate for pro-life policy, um, but don't be surprised when something happens. Don't, don't go into despair, right? Advocate for it. Believe in it. Call people, call legislatures and Congressman, believe it or not, when you call your congressman and your legislature, they really do listen. Um, don't tell on me, but I, I've called congressmen from Kansas and said, yeah, our office is in Topeka. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have an office in Kansas. <laughs> Can you help us? And they listen. 
So call your, call your representatives, call your senators, let them know what you care about, let them know what you're passionate about. That's what they're there for, but don't obsess over it. Uh, the second part of that question was kind of asking more specifically about when it comes to loving my neighbor, uh, how does this play out when you know that neighbor is, is very vocal about being pro-choice? How, how can we lovingly navigate those kinds of conversations with people? Yeah, so again, I think very prayerfully, but I also think very calmly, right? So I think a lot of times... We, we get so charged up with someone that disagrees with us fundamentally that, that we start to, you know, we start to get angry. And I know, for instance, I was on a one-hour call with NPR, not to go back to that, and this lady was throwing everything at me. Um, I mean, trying to trip me up on everything. And she's not, she's not, I mean, she's not a fan of mine, but at the end of the interview, she did say, hey, thank you for being so nice to me. And now, look, we can't just be nice guys, right? But at the same time, like, we need to be kind. We need to be willing to listen um, and, and actually listen to what someone says. And, you know, one of the ways that sharing the gospel, right, we need to share our faith. Well, if I sit down, and I didn't end up flying commercial today, but if I sit down to the guy next to me and I say, Hey, if, uh, and yes, I was trained on this too, but hey, if you die tonight, do you know what's going to happen to you? You know, <laughs> yeah, who knows what you're going to get, right? But at times what I'll ask them and say, hey, the, you know, when I'm on a plane, I can't help it. I just I think of things like life and death. Do you have any spiritual beliefs or what do you believe about this? And then you listen to them. And then after you listen to them, you say, do you mind if I tell you what I think? And so a lot of times I think we're too quick to just say what we think. Listen to them first. Let them tell you what they think and why, you, why they believe it. Instead of just trying to then go back and poke back with all the jabs of where they're wrong, go back and say, do you mind if I tell you why I believe what I believe? But if we listen respectfully, and they may say no, but that doesn't mean we, 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 we say, well, not going to deal with that person anymore. Change the subject, right? Talk about sports, talk about the weather, talk about anything else, but, but have a legitimate friendship, an interest in someone. And you know, what was the greatest uh, thing that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin said about Jesus? He hangs around with tax collectors, with publicans, and with sinners, right? We, we've got to be a friend of sinners, We've got to be a friend of people that don't see things eye to eye with us. And when they start to see that we care as much about them as we do about proving them wrong, then we can start to have an honest conversation. So we need to pray for them, but we also need to just be friends. Now, right, uh, Nate had a different saying for this than we had in Alabama, but, you know, if you, we used to say if you go, if you go to beg with pigs, you'll wake up smelling like them, right? So, friendships, not where you're just like investing so much that you start to let them, you know, make you doubt what you believe, but honest friendships where you're pursuing their heart and pursuing their life. So this question, um, I, I don't think it's any secret, the, the polarization that the Roe v. Wade decision has caused. So that's kind of the context for this question. It says this whole Roe v. Wade business 
only shifted the decision of abortion to the states. Yet everyone's hyped for an all-or-nothing revelation story, a polarization I find to be highly ridiculous. How would you de-escalate people's feelings on such polarizing events to bring them to realize its impact was highly overrated? If you need me to reread it. No, no, no. Yeah, You know, again, gentle, a gentle answer turns away wrath. I think being very gentle uh, and, again, saying, listen, can I tell you what I believe happened at the Supreme Court? You know, and helping people understand. I think one of the things we have to learn, and this goes back, and I I mean, I'm probably going to hit four or five other hot topics, and, you know, (laughs) this goes back to education. We don't teach civics anymore, really. Um, We're not teaching about our government much anymore. Um, We're not requiring that, that our students master subjects anymore. And so I, I think you've got to realize that probably most walking around people um, don't, don't really know what happened at the Supreme Court. They're just listening to something. And then, you know, again, I'm here, another hot topic here, <laughs> social media, right? Most people get their news from social media and what somebody else said, and they read it, and it's like, oh, well, that's what happened. But they don't really ever read what happened. And so they get a hot take from social media and they're like, well, hey, this is what happened. And so, again, I think with kindness, helping people understand, you know, what what really happened at the Supreme Court and helping them know what what happened. Is this being recorded? All right. Uh, By God's grace. Right. So I'm going to say by God's grace, our calls of pregnant women went through the roof after the leak of the Supreme Court case. Because on the news media, it was, abortion is now over. And women who were pregnant literally thought, oh, I can't get an abortion. And they were calling us. I mean, our numbers quadrupled of women that were calling because they believed what they saw, that abortion had been ended. Therefore, they thought they couldn't get it. And we were getting calls from New York, California. I mean, places where it won't even be over now. So we got to also realize we we live in a society of, of quick takes. People just get a little bit... And so again, with kindness, say, you know, I, I know you, you say that, but can I help you understand what I saw happen? Or can I encourage you to, you know, and, and I, can, I can send some links to some really short briefs on kind of what did happen. Can I send you this couple paragraph thing to help you really understand what happened? Um, you know, I, and I know sometimes we don't want to revel in it, but when I have talked to some pro-choice people who are very upset, people in my own family, you know, one of the things I've done, again, not that I agree with it, but to say, well, you know, in California, in New York, uh, it's actually going a lot the other way. And abortion is still very accessible in our country, even for people who live in, as they like to say, flyover states. It's still very accessible. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about that we need to be mindful of even is in every single state, all 50 states, not a single state has made a rule yet against the abortion pill. of the abortions that are happening in our country right now are from the abortion pill. And right now, during COVID, Planned Parenthood put an app, and you can go on the app. You don't even have to prove you're pregnant. You can just say you're pregnant, and they will send to your house the abortion pill. So it's happening. And so a lot of things is just to, to acknowledge the truth on their side, right? Well, it's still allowed in California, and it's still allowed in Illinois, and it's still allowed in Michigan, and then to say, because this is what this decision said. So 
you know, go back to truth. This may be the most harsh thing I say, and I don't mean it to be harsh, but truth, and, you know, I told you my friend said, I love when science starts to catch up with God. I mean, you're, I'm, my worldview is this is the source of truth, right? And when you stake your life on it, you're staking your life on truth. Well, when somebody comes to say, well, life doesn't need to be protected, they have, it's, it's not truth. And whenever you tell a lie, in order to, to continue that lie, you have to tell more lies or you have to, to get violent. Or you have to get mad. You have to get angry, right? Brothers and sisters, this is what I would say is we stand on truth. And when you stand on truth, you don't have to be mad. You don't have to get violent. You don't have to get angry. Stand on truth and, and desperately in kindness try to help others see that truth. And part of the truth is as much as Maybe some of us in this room wished it had have done. The decision on Friday did not end abortion in the United States of America. Did that answer the question? I think it did. I think so. Yeah. But for whoever asked the question, come up and talk to Herbie afterwards. <laughs> okay, so this one kind of gets back to some of the conversation that we had earlier, but it brings a, a, a different angle to it, and so I think it's worth asking again. Um, it, it essentially what it's saying is how does one deal with some of the more edge moral issues around this topic of mom's lives being in danger when carrying a child through like, rare disorders? What is the Bible? Does the Bible have any leeway or what do we do in these situations? So I think I hope it's fair to say I'm not an ethicist. Right? Uh, I, I did take uh, biblical ethics in college at a Baptist university and this question was posed, right? And wow, like it's hard when, when someone says to you, okay, and this was the way it was posed. You have a wife and you have three kids. She just found out her, she's pregnant and she will pass away if she has that baby. Do you allow her to have an abortion? I remember that was the, and as I've wrestled with that, when I go back to God's word over and over and over again, I see something in the pages, which is God is in control and he is sovereign. And so I will say, you know, in my years now, I mean, I, I never, even when that question was posed, I still fought for a pro-life ethic. But I'm not going to lie. I mean, it, it kind of shook me, right? Because I'm thinking, how am I going to raise my three kids by myself? And what am I going to do? But then if you look at God's word, he's sovereign. And things don't always turn out the way they say they will. I have one of my best friends in high school, which is this is what I anchored my answer on in college. They told his mom to have an abortion because she was most certainly going to die. She was diagnosed with cancer, and if she didn't get chemo, she was going to die. Um, she did die, but she died when he was 35 years old, right? We don't know tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. And doctors have been wrong before. Diagnoses have been wrong before. Uh, on the, the friend across from me on the plane that I rode from, he has a 95-year-old uh, grandfather-in-law who was told 25 years ago that he had a terminal disease and was going to die, and he's still living with the terminal disease. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. And so if, if, as Christians committed to God's word, believe that God is sovereign, then we don't take life even when it looks hard and it looks difficult. And the way I look at it even is Christ Jesus came. He came to 
ransom himself, to give his life away. And so as hard as it would be in that moment, I mean, my wife and I agree, we agree that the biblical thing and the thing that we see from Scripture is if that were to ever happen to us, would have ever happened to us, that she would ransom her life for the child. Um, and that she would not try to play God, but she would allow God to, to bear out the, the circumstance. And I know that answer also bears on another hot topic. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. <laughs> With medical care and all types of things. But. Okay, so this question kind of moves us into a, a little bit of a different angle on the topic of sanctity of life. But it says, I understand the conversation being centered around the current hot topic of abortion uh, and that Lifeline is more of an adoption support organization. I think you can probably speak to the, the multifaceted mm-hmm. ways that Lifeline operates. But however, can you speak to the sanctity of life as it relates to suicide? I know that's definitely a different angle than what we talked about today, but yeah. yeah Jeremy only told me we were talking about abortion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've got all the hot topics. So, uh, yeah, right. If we believe in life, then we have to to plead and be there, um, and it, you know, it it has to break our heart. Uh, I look at all types of suicide. One hopelessness of people that that feel like there's no other solution but to take their own life um we we need to we need to be sensitive towards that even when those people may have confusion that we disagree with or are struggling with things that we would deem sinful we need to lean in and again i think we're called to be salt and light and you know we we don't we don't need Something that's really salty doesn't need more salt. It's the things that aren't salty that need salt. And so we need to go and be salt in life to those. If this is also directed towards end of life or physician suicide, I go back to my answer with if, if, if your wife is saying, if they say your wife's going to pass away if she doesn't have an abortion, I'd say the same thing. Like life is, is precious. Um, one of the examples that I, I had earlier that I didn't use is we had an adoptive family that went through a process to adopt a little girl from India, knowing that she would pass away. And they didn't know how long it would be. She, she passed away. Um, but they had heard that this orphanage she was in was going to stop all life-saving treatment and it broke their heart. And so they adopted this little girl and she lived for, if I recall, about 14 months in their home. Um, but they believed that they wanted to protect the dignity of her life. And so we need to protect the dignity of life. Um, it's funny. (laughs) The same guy who lost his son then started talking to my friend about his 25 year old grandfather-in-law. And they started talking about in a very secular way about basically how he had eaten through the family's savings and that soon they weren't having money to take care of him. And I love these guys, both believers, but in the moment, my heart kind of sank. And it's like, you know what? Who cares about an inheritance? Life is worth protecting. And so we, we believe life is, is sacred from womb to tomb. And so we need to fight for life in every spectrum, which means standing up for those that are marginalized, even when what's marginalizing them, we don't agree with. Um, we plead with them to to live and we plead with them and come around with them and we befriend them. The number one reason of, of self-inflicted suicide 
is not knowing where to turn. And when we had nowhere else to turn, Christ Jesus came and said, hey, all your, all your righteousness is but filthy rags. And while you're still sinners and while you're still breathing out threats against me, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your punishment and what you deserve, and I'm going to be a friend to sinners. And so we need to follow Christ and be a friend even when we don't agree with their worldview or their people. We need to be a true friend. And I think a lot of your advice that you shared earlier when walking through a mother who's gone through a lot of traumatic events uh, bears out in this conversation as well. Being present, mm. being available, giving your ear is, is huge mm. in that Amen. situation. Okay, so what would you say to somebody who is a Christian who is admittedly pro-life or pro-choice, excuse me? Mm. How would you engage in a conversation with a fellow believer who says that, yeah, I'm pro-choice? So I still say grace and kindness, but I do think, right, um, with a family member, it's clear in Matthew 18 that you, you go and you confront that. And uh, I think you confront it with Scripture, confront it with what the, the Word of God says, um, and, and you plead with that brother or sister um, to, to look at the Word. But, but let me say this. Don't judge harsher than you would judge someone who also doesn't have a biblical view on something else, right? And an inconsistency even that I believe fuels this whole thing, and I'm going to really get myself in trouble now, but we need to be pleading with men that think it's okay to look at pornography inside of the house of God. We need to be pleading with men to stop pleasuring themselves with entertainment and to start leading we need to plead with young men to not live in their parents' basement for the rest of their life, but to get a job and to be responsible. And we need to plead with Christian parents to say, launch your children, grow them up, come on, let's go. You know, the women who are struggling with the decision of abortion didn't just get there by osmosis. They got there because a young man got them there. And the world wants to say that this is a woman's issue. This is a man and a woman's issue. And in the church, we need to be looking at the men square in the face and say, what are you going to do? Are you going to start telling these young men to treat women like the co-heir of Christ that they really are? Because, again, I, I'm going to get myself in lots of trouble. Thanks a lot. But, you know, <laughs> right? I know for a fact, woman does not find her love in physical intimacy. I mean, that's not the way a, wo a woman doesn't go, hey, I want to be loved by physical intimacy. A man finds love in physical intimacy. A woman wants to be known and wants to be valued. Right? So men, we got to start knowing and loving and valuing women for who they are as an image bearer of Christ. And we need to teach the young men to love them that way and not to want the physicalness. Right? And I think, too, we need to be teaching, I mean, I'm really getting in trouble, a Sex ethic at a young age to kids. Because I, I, I and, and, and that it's beautiful. It's between a man and a woman, and God meant for it to be good and beautiful. But just like a fire in a fireplace is beautiful and brings warmth, if you take that fireplace and you put it into your rug of your living room, your house is going to go up in flames, right? And I think a lot of times, sometimes we teach the gifts of God as something to be held back. Well, be, be very scared of that. And that's one that I feel like in the church, we've been like, oh, let's not talk about it. We don't need to talk about intimacy. That's not to be talked about. 
And so what we end up doing with kids is, hey, this is something you don't need to do. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't do anything with it. And so going, this is a gift of God. But just like if I go to the Chinese buffet and I go 10 times and I am going to be sick to my stomach, right? If you go and you do this outside of God's way that he meant this gift, you will be worse than sick to your stomach. You're going to have consequences, adult consequences. We need to start teaching that ethics. So yes, I think we need to confront our pro-life or pro-choice brother or sister and help them see a biblical ethic. Um, With grace, we can have a little bit more candor with them because we both say we're in Christ and believe God's word is foundational. But then we also need to make sure that we don't become one-topic confronters, right? And we also need to make sure that we're not always the one being confronted and that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. I got things I need to be confronted about. Right? And so let's make sure that as we confront, we're also willing to be confronted about our blind spots. Because I know I got them. Right? And uh, the Lord has given me a great co-equal image bearer that likes to point out my blind spots. But it's really, really good. And it's healthy for me. Um, and sometimes, right, that's what marriage is for. So we know where our blind spots are physically and spiritually. Okay, so real speed change here as we get close to wrapping things up. Um, people want to know about the India story. Oh, yeah. Okay. Whew. Uh, long story short, so I, I got into India, and I was preaching at a church that I, I believe fellowship supports, right, Rick? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was preaching, and the end of the week, so I was there on Sunday to Sunday, I was preaching again. And uh, we were doing a conference with Steps Homes there in Chennai, which I know your church also supports and has been a part of and visited. And friends, I am really not this ignorant. Uh, I've been around the world, but, you know, my excitement got over me. And I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel midway through my trip. And this young man comes up and he says he's from Chennai and that he has gone to school in England and you know, I mean, next thing I know, I am full out like gospel presentation. I mean, I mean, just sharing the gospel with this guy. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but I mean, I was no holds bar, like just sharing the gospel. And, you know, then what got best of me, I was like, hey, there are other Christians here. And I mean, he was showing some sensitivity to the gospel. So I said, hey, why don't you meet some of my friends? Well, when I met, introduced him to some of my Indian friends who are also believers, um, they said, this guy's a spy. He's either a crook or he's a government spy. Well, they started thinking he was a government spy. And they told me if I didn't get out of the country immediately, that my passport could be apprehended and I could be thrown into an Indian prison. And so I I was like, that's probably not the best idea. Um, And so I had to cut my trip short. And uh, literally, I, I was in Mumbai at the passport thinking, well, as I put my passport up there, well, this could be it, you know. Who knows what happens then? And so he was just a crook. Uh, he wasn't a spy because I, well, I, I think he was just a crook because I got out just fine and I've not had my visa revoked. So I think I'm fine. But that happened. Um, and it was on the, the day after the Kansas City Chiefs had won the Super Bowl. And uh, you, will, you will be very happy to know that all of your staff members stayed up in the wee hours of the night watching that game to make sure that the Chiefs, you know, won that game. Very sacrificial of them. Yeah. But the better story, real quick, is, so the lady that wrote the law that became Dobbs v. Jackson that overturned Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood, Casey, um, in 1974, 
she became pregnant and she wasn't married. And again, everyone in her circle said, hey, abortion's legal. Go have an abortion. And then you can just move on. And she said that she heard a still small voice. She was not a believer at the time. A still small voice say, do not take the life of your child. So she had her child. Better story than my other friend. Actually joined a church. They welcomed her in, loved on her, cared for her. And she knew one of the things they encouraged her is, well, you're going to have to support this child. So she said, well, I want to go be a nurse. So her story was she actually thought she wanted to be an emergency room nurse because she thought they made more money. And in the end, they put her in labor and delivery. And she said in her first week, she delivered a 15-week-old baby. And this was in 1976, 1975, 1976. And that, that baby lived for five days. And she said that that day, she said, here I am, a single mom from rural Mississippi. She said, by this point, she'd come to Christ. She said, I looked at the Lord and I said, if I ever get an opportunity, I will make a law to make sure that that baby can't be aborted. So four years ago, just four years ago, the guy that was retiring as a congressman in her area, state congressman, came to her and said, would you be interested in running for my seat? And she said yes. And the very first piece of legislation that she passed was a ban on aborting a baby after 15 weeks. And that's the case that made it to the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So. It's pretty crazy to see just all of those storylines come together and where we are now. Absolutely. So as we close out our time, I, I want to just remind everybody that the purpose of this space is not just that our heads would be filled with more knowledge, but that our hearts and our hands would be moved towards action. So Herbie, thank you so much for everything that you've walked us through tonight. If you could share with us, um, what is the next step for somebody that is just moved by what God's word has had to say about the sanctity of, of all life and caring for the vulnerable? Um, how do we get involved? What's maybe a first step that we could take to, to do that? Yeah. So trite, but so true. First, just pray, right? Pray the Lord would bring someone into your sphere of influence that you can help, right? And then once you pray, start looking out and looking around, right? Because he will answer that prayer and look out and look around. I, I bet if we polled the room, there's not a single person in here that's not one step away from a woman that's going through an unplanned crisis pregnancy, right? It may be in your family. Uh, it could be your neighbor two doors down and you don't even know it. It could be someone that's right around you and it, you don't know it. It could be somebody at work and you don't know it, right? Ask the Lord to bring them to your path and ask him that you'll be ready. Um, but then ask him what he would have you do. And then be faithful when he tells you what he needs you to do, when he leads you to what, you do, what to do. And some, so for some, you know, that might look like, hey, I, I want to go up to the state and to my county and I want to say, you know what? I might not be able to be a foster parent, but I'd love to spend a day with a child in foster care if they need. I'd love to be a relief parent. I'd love to do something. Maybe you want to come volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center that we have uh, off gauge and on 21st. Did I get that right? Hey, hey, hey. Right? So we need volunteers, men and women, because we have men that come into the center with, their, with women all the time. So maybe it's volunteer, Right? Maybe you want to say, and, and you're at a place and stage that you say, you know what, I would adopt a child if there was a child that needed a family. So there's a lot of different steps. There are a lot of easy entry ramps. Some might say, you know what, tell Nate and our team, hey, if there's a mom that needs a place, like 
I'd love, I'd love to be there. Maybe you're an empty nester and you're like, hey, I got two extra beds and we can be a safe place for a mom or we can do something, you know, just be ready. Look out, but, but pray. Ask the Lord to open up your eyes and help you look out. And then we've got resources on the table. Uh, our team put together that book at the beginning of 2020. So it's a, the only thing that's dated is it says one day if Lord wills and Roe versus Wade is overturned. Well, that's today. Um, that's the only thing that's really dated. But we put that resource together to kind of say this is what a whole life pro-life ethic looks like. And so this is our gift to you. If you want a book, there's information on the table about how to get engaged with Lifeline as well. Herbie, thank you. We appreciate you coming out. <clears throat> Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.